welcome to this latest edition of Funnel Story Podcast and thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me in this lovely downtown Los Altos office. Absolutely. So let's start with some background of yours. I would love to introduce to my audience what's your background, where you come from and what did you do before you achieved where you are right now. Sure. It's a long conversation. I'll give you the short of it. You know, I've been in cybersecurity now for about 16 years. I did my undergrad in computer science. Figured that I wasn't the smartest software engineer and yet I liked doing that as much. But what I loved doing was being on the business side of technology. And uh, had to quickly find my way into what the calling would be. Ended up in cybersecurity consulting. One of my early clients was salesforce.com. They ended up hiring me for about four years. I was there in the very early days. Got a lot of inside perspectives into cloud security before cloud security became a, a thing of its own. And since 2010, I've been building companies. I built the first company in the CASB space. Subsequently, 2015, built a company called Redlock in cloud security posture management space. And yeah, that was acquired by Palo Alto Networks, where I created what many might be familiar with as Prisma Cloud. And spent three years and now off to building Endor Labs, which is focused on all around kind of code security, if you will, which you know, foundationally, if you look at it, 80 to 90% of code in modern applications is code you don't write, but borrow. You know, GitHub is a developer's best friend these days. And uh, we're just looking at ways that we can help organizations achieve more efficiency and enable productivity through use of open source without feeling restless about the security governance and management concerns. So I will come focus on something which is your speciality, at least the way you ran Redlock. Tell me how you achieved the successful go-to-market of Redlock. First, why don't you tell what Redlock did so that I can then put in a context how you achieved the go-to-market. Sure. So Redlock was founded in 2015, just when you were starting to see this massive uptake in cloud infrastructure adoption. You know, platforms like AWS were becoming ubiquitous to how you developed new applications, except there was a big problem. Security had no idea what was going on in these environments. Developers were going, spinning up these environments with credit cards. And, you know, you just didn't know what the wild, wild west was. So Redlock came in and basically what is now called cloud security posture management. Back then there was no name. We just said we would do provide you visibility and assessment of your best practices, configurations, monitoring of your users, activities, resources, compute, and other things to give you a very broad perspective and very quickly of what are your risks in the cloud today. And so from a, from a go-to-market perspective, coming back to that question, how did you discover what was the right way of selling into that audience? Yeah, I mean, was it something that you were trying to give it to everybody, like everybody can try out the product or realize that you have to do it in a very top-down manner, how yeah. it is working out? So look, it's a great question. I think what I've found in my career, I've fortunately or unfortunately always ended up working on things that I'm just seeing around the corner, but it's not a mainstream market for. And so with going back to Redlock, people didn't know what to ask for, what solutions they were looking for. There was no well-established Gartner category. So it was an evangelical sales process, which did require us to get in front of as many customers, drive education and awareness about what the potential implications of using cloud in an ungoverned manner were. And in many cases, actually, the best tooling we found was to tell a, a customer to give us API access into their cloud to just show them in their environment live 
the kinds of things that we could surface. And so it was really two or three things. It was A, kind of convince people that, that they need to have a better grasp on cloud because the cloud is here to stay and grow. Two, what is the best way to deliver value? Actually show it in their environment and show live potential problems and risks that you're uncovering. And the third thing ultimately was how do you build a, a business case for them to go back to their CFO for what would typically be an unbudgeted expense because this was a new category, they hadn't thought about it early. So it was an evangelical sales process. Got it. So, and how did you conduct your trials? I mean, that was like the sitting here with the customers yeah. doing that or just or throwing away the products to customers and say, why don't you try it out? What was the way you worked it out? Yeah, you know, PLG was not sexy back then. Actually, that term was never used back then. I think for us, we knew this was going to be more of enterprise-led motion. We really need to get the CISOs buying to understand that this is a problem that they want to start investing and solving for. And so what we found was the base success was we would have an hour call to just explain what the value proposition of product was, get enough buying to say, let's try it in your environment, try it against a handful of your cloud environments. The next step was typically a POC where we would come in in a meeting, help them connect through the APIs. There was no agents or proxies. It was a very lightweight deployment. We would connect in and by the end of the meeting, we would walk away with having produced a baseline set of results for them. And then we would kind of give them the access to play around with. But I will say eight out of 10 times, there would be a holy shit moment. And I can't tell you how many times our POC kickoff calls turn into war rooms because the customers saw things that they were never supposed to see in these environments. And so those are, I think, the best moments you can create to drive urgency for a product purchase is that. The other piece is, you know, I always used to give the guidance to my sales team, like we're not trying to over-optimize things. Like let's build a repeatable sales motion we don't want to have this lumpiness that traditionally you get in enterprise sales where you know you have a great quarter and then two quarters are dry because you're building kind of towards the next deal, which may take six to nine months to cook up. We actually had a 90K in 90 day type of goal. So how can we do 90K ACV deals in 90 days, which required the time to first value to be critical, like critically available. So the reason why I wanted you to go into the time frame from 2015, 2019 is a generation seems to have passed since those years to now. Yes. Now you have started a new company and I'm sure you're talking to a lot of customers now. Yeah. What has changed in terms of go-to-market approach? You know, it's, it's funny. Look, if we were sitting here a year, year and a half ago before the macroeconomic condition hadn't changed, I think we would all be vying for usage and adoption and care much less about revenue. And so if you asked me this question a year and a half ago, I would say, oh, I'm not focused on revenue. I'm focused on just usage, trials, adoption. I would say it's a balance today. I think I wouldn't be rewarded as a CEO and leader of a company, either, either from investors or outsiders, if I had a thousand free users and a year later, I still had negligible revenue. So I, I'm kind of trying to optimize for both. I think what has changed is much more focus. We did have it in Redlock, but it's really more about I know I'm still doing this evangelical sales process. So I still need to go top down. I need to get the buying. But here there's two things. One is engineers in for Endor Labs product play a pretty instrumental part in the success or failure of POC. So how do we get them along for the ride? And you know, I'm not only worried about UX and UI of the product, but DX around the product. The second thing is time to first value still kind of remains the same. But it's, it's, again, continue to condense and shrink the sales cycles, even though we do not have free trials for Endor Labs on our website. 
and that's okay. We, we, we believe we're still at a stage where we want to learn and see how people use the product. We want to be there side by side. But we're trying to make that process a whole lot easier from the time you say go till the time I deliver value. And we actually have created a POV guideline that we share with all of our customers, where it's usually a five to seven day process, believe it or not, for an enterprise product. So from, well, if I was listening to you, comparing those two processes, you said at the redlock timeframe, you were doing the same evangelical thing that has not changed, but you were sitting with the customers, doing the POCs and you're figuring out issues and suddenly that turned into a, what had happened kind of a moment. Yeah. And now you said that you're, you have to focus on a developer experience because developers do not like a lot of people sitting alongside with them. Correct. When you have to take them for a ride, but you still have to do the top-down sales. So contrasting thing, it looks like you don't get, you have you have a distance from the actual guys who are trying out the product you have to observe them, yes. be close to them, but still maintain a distance because it's a different audience altogether. Yes. And a lot of times we're being brought in for POCs by security teams, and those teams are then taking this in behind the scenes to their engineers. And this is where I'm sure we'll talk more about this, just product-driven telemetry, understanding what's going on behind the scenes, who's onboarding, which code repos are they onboarding, which connectors are they driving towards, did they put us in a CI, you know, just trying to gauge the behind the scenes, what's transpiring when we're not on a call with a customer is super critical. Great that you brought that point because, I mean, you know my background. I worked for four years at ShiftLift and one of the things I experienced the same thing to selling to developers was that they don't like salespeople, at least talking to them. But it's not it's not a sly on a sales folks. They yeah. do an amazing job, but it's just the nature of the, your customer audience. They do not like most of the people talking to them when they're doing their work. Yeah. And at that point of time, you have to measure their behavior experience by the actions they do. Right? And even to communicate to them, it has to be in, they are very particular about what you're telling them at what point of time, right? Yeah. So I was pleasantly surprised in our prior conversation when you told me, look, one of the things I want the marketing to change is that it should be driven based on people's behavior and to and customer marketing based on their actions, which means you collect the data, but you market them. How did you arrive at that kind of a conclusion? Because your last tenure was at Palo Alto, a pretty large company, yeah. a pretty top-down company. So, look, I think all of us drive these days our enterprise behaviors and our buying behaviors through what we do at home and what we do through consumer products. I mean, if you think about it, how many consumer products that we use have this beautiful nudging framework, as I call it, right? Which is, oh, on LinkedIn, you have completed 69% of your profile. If you do this one more step, you'll be here, right? You're kind of gamifying the whole experience of onboarding. You know, you'll get emails like, oh, I noticed you haven't, you know, come back to our service for a year, here's a 20% coupon, come back in, right? So obviously people are really trying to look at our behaviors as consumers for consumer-oriented products. The question is, why don't we do enough of that in enterprise products? And, and obviously we are trained to operate that way with consumer products. That's typically what we have an expectation when we come into the enterprise. And I think that, like, for me, having a product partner that I use in my company that knows when I'm stuck somewhere, and instead of waiting for me to put a support ticket to reach out to me or say, hey, I noticed you tried to upload this, it didn't work, here's a proactive solution. I mean, that is just so much more appealing, not just from a product perspective, but also evaluating the company that I'm looking to partner with and invest in. Because, you know, 
in most enterprises, people don't want to, you know, rebuild and retool every year. Like if I'm looking for a new partner, a new product, I hope that that will be the partner of choice for the next three to five years. So I'm kind of trying to sell to my customer my product capabilities and support capabilities, but also the experience of so working you, with us. So if I say this, that let's say five years back, you had one common audience, which was a big ball of customers and users, buyers and users bought together. Yeah. And you used to communicate to both of them pretty much in a similar way. Yeah. And now you have a clearly identified two targets. One is a buyer, one is a user. Yes. And you need to communicate both of them in a very, very different manner because both yes. of them have their own power centers. If you yes. will. And I need to get signals, especially when, as I'm not there yet, but soon hopefully we will be, where we're doing lots of evaluations and lots of POCs. I, I want to know where to focus my team's time and attention. And, you know, if I see two customers, one that is very interacting heavily in a product, and I see another one where since our last call a week ago, nobody's even logged in or performed any specific actions that we think would take them further along in their journey. Guess what? Like there's one buyer that's potentially much more serious than the other. And so from a timing perspective, I would prioritize my resources going out to the customer that is also kind of pulling more of us. So it's a kind of a push and pull type of scenario. Got it. So let, let's take a step back because as we are talking before and after, there is an entire COVID era that happened between us and yeah. we are in 2023, which is a very different and a difficult marketplace, yeah. if you will. If you have to do crystal balling to for the startup, that how this will turn out, what you think and what should be their go-to-market model in this, regularly for this year. Right. Look, I think it's, it's, I don't know if you can have a one-size-fits-all answer. I think it really depends on what your business is, who your target audience is, what your ideal customer profile is. You know, if you're much more in a transactional business, well-established idea, you want people to have easy access to product, I would say, you know, it's really a PLG first approach would suffice. I think if, you are in the situation we are in where you're trying to evangelize new concepts and other aspects. You really need to focus a lot more on the executive sponsors that will also help kind of ask those questions inside the companies to their users and potential, you know, other influencers in the company. I think you have to figure out what's right for your business, but I will say this, that I think in most companies you will end up finding that it's not either PLG or enterprise sales. I think at least in B2B SaaS, you will probably end up somewhere in the middle, which is the hardest place to be because you want to do both. And as you know, with startups, especially in this market with limited resources, and how do you best optimize for a bottoms up and a enterprise led function? And I think the things we talked about are probably the important signals where, yes, you want to go talk to a CISO and start a conversation there and have them introduce your team. But as soon as they say yes on a POC, like, I always tell my team within a 60 minute conversation, we should be able to go from, let me set you up first to here's your first report or first value proposition that I'm driving. First time user experience. Well, what I measure is time to first value. Time to first value. And then from there on, be able to prioritize the signals because you know I think we're all gonna be resource constrained trying to do more with less. So how do you get the right product signals into your go-to-market teams to decide where you wanna focus your time and attention? So to me, it's a, the, the product-led part is really how can you shrink the sales cycle down as, as heavily as possible. So let's focus on that. From that user audience and the POCs are going to change because now you are not only you have a very specific developer use case, but even for the general audience, the, you, the people who are trying out, as, as I call them, that they are 
mobile app store trained generation. Yes. The guys who have been trained to try before research their data before they talk about. And I was talking with one of my prior guests and they said the opportunities for information trade for the traditional sales engineers have drastically gone down. People can find most of the information on the internet. Yeah. So they are not going to give their time just to understand about industry from you. Yeah. When you come in, it's a very fast paced moving scenario, which means that the product data becomes very crucial to understand what, where, what they're doing so that you can respond back. Correct. Right. What's your take on that? I mean, you talked about it in earlier, the product data is important. Why? Yeah. Actually, even a step before that, right? You asked, you've been asking me like a lot of this about what was different between Redlock and here. One of the things at Redlock was we had a, we had a kind of lead form in front of every piece of content. You know, today, I don't think people want to do that. People want to do their own research to your point. Um, you know, we have a lead form if you want to watch a recorded demo, but besides that, you can get all our collateral, all our content without any data. That's process, a great point, actually. Right? So, so, so again, it kind of starts at the very top. You're educating your buyers. You want them to be further along to a point. You want to get them to a point where they would not turn around or shy away from a lead form. So that's kind of piece one. Now, let's say I've got them hooked. Now they want to do a POC. I'm in the evaluation. Like I said, I think there's two parts of the product telemetry. One is you're gauging the seriousness of the buyer and prioritizing where your resources should go. First, pick up the phone or send an email to figure out who they should have a conversation with to kind of nudge them up. That's so there's a, who has a propensity to buy. The second piece is you're also trying to just understand your product. Like where are people getting stuck? You know, is my user experience, is my documentation correct? What do I need to further simplify in my journey for my customer and users to get them the fastest time to value and to get to them to the point of conclusion where they can say, I want to buy or not buy. Makes sense. So now, how do you expect in an enterprise sales cycle, you still have to get, let's say, let me paint a hypothetical scenario. You went into a shop where the CISO said, yes, I'm interested. I would introduce you to my team. Yeah. Right? And then your team started to, this team started to use the product. And traditional POC is your best luck, but that does not happen. People will start using the product and they will use their product, your product on their dime. Sometimes yeah. they will use slowly high. How do you use that data to inform your sales team that this is the right time to go and talk to a buyer? So I'll be perfectly frank. Like, do we have this all, all these systems built out and humming and hanging together? No. Where I would like it to go is signals that directly go from product signals of what we have to ultimately define as our playbook. So, okay, you know, the customer's taking this action. For example, the fact that somebody has connected their code repo is a signal that there is some point in their onboarding journey. Another signal could be, look, we found something and they have subsequently remediated that problem on their side. So the full life cycle of the workflow, which gives me a signal that they actually did find value enough to go resolve that. So you kind of define what your signals are for your product, for your business. Ideally for me, you kind of feed those into the tools that your teams are living in. So if it's for marketing, it goes into HubSpot. If it's for sales, it goes into sales. You know, whatever tools you're using from where you drive automation and the reality is these stacks are kind of fragmented, right? It's not one thing. So you almost need this middleware, if you will, where you're bringing in product, telemetry, product data, somewhere to a middleware from where you're then feeding it to these various end systems for your sales teams, for your marketing teams, for your SCs, to ultimately meet them where they typically are tracking their business. I think eventually you want to get to a point where you can almost challenge a sales rep on their commit call 
based on what you're seeing in the evaluation signals, right? If your customer hasn't even onboarded the code repo and the sales guy is calling it a 90% you know, chance of closing the deal in, in 30 days, I mean, I would challenge that. So let's, let's play that out because in the sales process, there is a funnel and there's a distinct funnel and you can clearly say if somebody has not reached the fourth or a fifth part of the funnel in a five part funnel, you would not use that account for forecasting purposes yes. for that quarter, right? Same thing happens, let's say for customer retention, like if the person is not onboarded, highly likely unless you have a personal relationship, that yes. person is not going to renew. But when you look at the product usage specifically, if you're doing a trial, you talked about a signal, there's no funnel that exists in the POC. Although it does exist in most of the people's mental process, like you said, yeah. if you are doing a POC and in Redlock, if you got to that what that happened moment, yeah. you know that was the point which was fourth or fifth stage of a POC yeah. funnel. But that does not exist. Do you think, I mean, how do you visualize that? I mean, that, it's it, very hard. You know, our, most of my team at Redlock, we had built spreadsheets to do this. Like it's so funny, you have a, you have a CRM for all the business forecasting, but there's this massive just hole in the middle of the process, which is probably arguably the most critical process in any sales motion in enterprise is POC started to POC concluded, what the hell is happening? What there? the hell is happening? Right? And in Salesforce, people have a stage which says POC started, and then they have a stage that moves forward that says POC closed. And it's like, heck, there could be deals sitting there for a week, 30 days, 90 days, depending on your process. And I actually want to know that during that most critical stage, what exactly is going on? Exactly and I, I, and unfortunately, my teams had to go use spreadsheets to go track that. And as you know, as soon as you get into spreadsheets, it's error prone and manual and only as good as people are completing the data. And, and, and it's still anecdotal, not data driven. We are talking a lot about the product, like kind of product data, how, how the product operates, how the product helps to build those. I mean, product has to provide the data, product has to provide those yeah. kind of experiences, which means the product manager role also has to get responsible for how the products are built for easy go-to-market. And let me say that, like 10 years back when I was like at McAfee, my job was to build the product and throw it over the wall and the sales engineer go-to-market will do. And I was actively discouraged also. I mean, that's not your job. Let's not cross the political boundaries of the organization. Yeah. But today, if... And Amazon came in between and said, no, no, product, security products don't need to be complex. You don't need to sell them with a professional services queue. Now the products are, have been made easier by Amazon and we are seeing the ripple effects. Yeah. Shouldn't the product manager be incentivized to make the go-to-market process simpler? And they should be just like the sales engineers are just, or salespeople are just given an incentive in the revenue. Yeah. I think they absolutely should. And actually... At a meta level, even if you think like when I was at Palo Alto Networks, right? How did people's bonuses get paid out? You know, there was usually a 50% component that's individual contribution, 50% that is related to business goals. Now, at a large company, that becomes very, very, very fuzzy, right? You have multiple products, multiple teams. But I 100% agree. And in fact, if you think about it, like in a, in a startup, your first, your product, man, your CEO first is the best SE. Eventually, the product managers have to be the next best SEs, and the actual SEs can almost in that in that order can come in sequence and then help you scale. And by no means am I trying to marginalize what a sales engineer's role is, but if a CEO and a product manager can't sell, nobody else can. And so, if you kind of follow that equation, hundred percent, I think a a big component of a product manager's goal should be how do I enable my sales goals. And in fact, at, at Endor, we're just doing our goal settings for next year. 
This is not just a goal for my product manager. These are goals for my engineers this year. One of the key goals is we have to hit these many customers, this much in ARR, and every engineer has that goal to say, how do you then break it down and enable your part of what you work on? I so, so much agree uh, that if everybody has that goal, then people make easier product for the customers yeah. because their incentive drives a lot of behavior. Yeah, right. So I have a last question here. I mean, this is, I mean, product manager was supposed to be my last question, but I, then I got so much interested in that, I changed order. There's a lot of talk about automation, data-driven automation, which is required for a lot of purpose. We want yeah. to do more with the less. And one of the benefits of PLG, frankly, is it's driving a lot of automation. Whether you are PLG or not, I believe everybody should get automated. Yeah. But the question here comes, who, what do you automate? Do you, do you automate the job of a human? to help them more because there's a lot of tools like project management which does the automated project management or you job or you say that no, no no humans should not be doing this job let the product do the job in many of the cases because this is mundane product should yeah. should be focused on higher order things yeah. what's your take on that look for decades we have always thought about how do we stitch our marketing automation software with our sales automation software the piece that's missing in this trifecta is the product so you have to tie marketing automation, sales automation, and product telemetry together. And it's important to understand, I talk to a lot of people with product telemetry, you know, they'll say things like, well, I use products like Pendo and other things, which are great. I've used them. I love them. But it's not about tracking UI behaviors. Now, most products are kind of moving away from just pure UI to, you know, people could be never logging into your UI and you could Especially still be a product. power user. Especially yeah. for your product. Your Absolutely. product is just by... How much time you spend in the UI, there may not be any usage. That is a failure on my part, actually, <laughs> because I want somebody to never have to log into my UI and still be very successful. So I think you have to tie the product telemetry. A lot of times we're logging information, we're logging users, logging in, actions they're taking, APIs they're calling, but we're just not tying it with business outcomes. And I think we just need to, the, the kind of third leg to that stool is product data. So it's got to be marketing and everything you're trying to understand about somebody very top of the funnel to then being able to understand their journey in the product, pre-sales and post-sales. And then you can kind of tie it to your sales force and gain size and other kind of business metric feelings. Got it. Hey, thanks Varun a lot for joining us. This was a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Thank you.